Okay, um, we can get started. Uh, I'm, I am, I'm going to be recording uh, each class and that will start at pretty, uh, exactly at three. And so I also appreciate it if everyone is here uh, at three o'clock so we can start. What I wanna do is introduce myself. I'm uh, Professor James Millis, M-I-L-L-E-S, it's pronounced Millis. And um, I am eager to uh, start this semester with all of you. I, this is my main course that I teach I, and I really enjoy this course. And I think it can be a very fun course. Um, like any course you get out of it, what you put into it. Uh, so I just wanna sort of go over some of the, uh, first of all, to go over some of the uh, uh, material in the syllabus, what to expect in this course and so on. So let me start. Um, okay, do you see my PowerPoint screen? Okay. Um, this is this is just the um, sort of I, I put this up up front and it's it's on the syllabus as well to sort of orient you to what to expect in this course, um, uh, what you'll be you'll be learning. Um, I, I don't consider it an MPRE prep course alone. You know, it, this will help you prepare for the MPRE, but that's not the whole point of this course. Um, we try and teach legal ethics in this class. That's why we call it that. Uh, but there's a lot of questions about what that means and how much we can do about that. Uh, so this is sort of things to look out for. So we're, I'm going to expect you to know and understand the, the uh, model rules of professional conduct. And uh, we'll talk about other sources of lawyer regulation as well on, two, on uh, Wednesday's class. Uh, I want you to be able to identify ethical issues uh, and uh, practice problem solving. So let me go back there for a minute. Uh, identifying issues is a key part of this material. Um, I tend to write uh, issue spotting exams, uh, you know, where you have to identify ethical, you know, ethical issues and come up with the uh, with uh, reasonable answers to them. Uh, sometimes there may not be a, an absolutely right or wrong answer, but there are answers that are arguable, and there are answers that are difficult to argue, or um, ill-supported. Ill so uh, we'll be getting uh, multiple choice question practice uh, primarily in the uh, five quizzes. Uh, essentially every two weeks there'll be a quiz on the material from that from the past two weeks. Uh, and the, multi the midterm and final will be uh, completely essay exam, well, largely if not completely. I might put a few uh, multiple choice questions in there as well, but I like to, I like to have a, a combination of both formats. Um, so this is um, a course that really requires you to not only know the rules, um, but to be able to identify when those rules will come into play and um, figure out how they apply or how to make choices when you have uh, difficult ethical choices in front of you. What do you do? Uh, what are your options? What options are, are foreclosed from you? 
So, oh, in addition, if you have, um, if you have this um, rule supplement, ethical problems in the practice of law, it contains a lot of multiple choice questions uh, uh, at the back of the book. Uh, for practice. And I would recommend using those. I'm not going to grade those. I'm not asking you to turn them in. I, I just recommend that you use those uh, to test your knowledge and to practice answering these kinds of questions. And also, I'd urge you not to peek at the answers in the back in the final pages of the book, trying to work them out before you actually, uh, before you look at the answers. Okay. Um, one other one final thing to say before I go on uh, is that legal ethics differs from most of your other law school classes, I think, in um, in least at least one way. In most of your classes, you're learning how to um, advocate for and work with uh, work for clients. Uh, could be a, a individual clients, could be large corporations, whatever they are. But you're working for others, right? And you're putting their uh, concerns at the top. Legal ethics differs in that you're not advised, this doesn't really teach, well, the key of legal ethics is not advising other people what to do, it, because the, the difference is that th this course asks you to examine your own choices and your own behavior in the context of the ethical rules and what's required of a lawyer. So, where you in another course, in a contracts course or, or uh, real estate transactions or anything like that, you're going to be advising clients. They have their own goals and objectives, and your job is to help them achieve those. In legal ethics, this is really about you as lawyers. This is uh, lawyers run into ethical problems. Well, I think lawyers run into ethical questions every single day. Many of them are easily answered. Um, and are, are relatively clear. Sometimes you run into a difficult one. And this course is meant to give you the guidance to identify what are the, the easy questions and what are the hard questions, and then to figure out how to answer the hard questions. So if anyone has a question, um, feel free to uh, use the raise hand uh, button on the... Um, uh, on the participants window if you use that, or you can just um, put something in the chat window. I may not see it immediately. I see, I see a couple of messages here. Um, or just speak up. If, uh, if I'm not seeing you, particularly if, uh, it, you know, because this, this is a large class, 57 people, there are two screens on my big, uh, my big iMac screen. So if I don't see you because you're on the next screen, just speak up and ask a question. Okay. Um, let me go over the format, not to expect as we go through the course. Okay. A key part of every class will be small group discussions. That's why I had you all sign up for uh, breakout rooms on Zoom. Um, I like to have uh, consistent grouping so students, as they're working through the semester, get to know each other and sort of form a, 
a small study group of their own, perhaps. And I'm hoping, I think this might be particularly important now that we're all online. I don't know how many of you know each other in the room. Um, I don't know if any of you have had classes with, well, you're second year, so you should have had at least some classes with your colleagues. But um, I think that's useful. So I will, I will be breaking up at least once in each class, there will be a uh, breakout room session where you will discuss one of the problems in the book. And I've assigned problems. They're all, all on, on the syllabus. We may, uh, I may ask about some other problems too, or other material in the course of the class, but the uh, problems that are in the syllabus are the ones that I will expect you to be uh, most conversant with and most uh, able to uh, speak to. Um, when we do a breakout group, uh, I'm going to ask you to actually think about the questions that are being asked. And um, I would like your group to try to reach a common answer when you're working through these answers. And that might mean, you know, tossing ideas back and forth, maybe debating a little bit and uh, try and reason with each other to try and try and use your shared reasoning to come up with one answer that you find that you think is uh, arguable and supportable. If you can't come up with one answer, I welcome dissents as well. Uh, so certainly, uh, these aren't written reports on these problems. I've done that before in, other, in another class, but not this one. Um, but I will, when I call on you, um, I will often ask one of you for your answer. And then I might ask other people in your group, because I've got a list of your groups, um, do you agree? Or do you have anything to add? And uh, so that is certainly welcome. I like that. Also, I, I expect the, these small groups to help each other, um, you know, not only during the, the problems, but um, outside of the classroom, you know, as you're working on this material. Um, and I, in fact, I may even uh, sometimes call on a group rather than an individual. Um, and any anytime for these small group discussions, particularly on the problems, if I call on you um, and you're not able to answer, you can call a friend. You can ask one of the other people in your group, or a, I may call one of the other people in your group to answer, to, to help to help you answer. Okay. I do a lot of cold calling, particularly with the problems the assigned problems, because you've got them, they're assigned to you, you know which ones are coming up each day. Um, so I expect everyone to be able to talk about those problems. Um, other than that, I will, you know, ask people to raise hands. I may call on people, um, but I tend to be a little, I, I tend to, uh, I'm not a harsh Socratic questioner. Um, but I may be a little harder on you or expect a little more of you on the assigned problems rather than, you know, just in the course of regular class discussion. And if I call on someone, um, and if you can't answer, just let me know and I'll call on someone else. I don't want to waste the class's time. Okay. Um, grading. Uh, there will be five uh, multiple choice questions each worth five points. So one, one, five questions on each quiz. Uh, and that adds up to a total of 25 points towards your final score. 
The midterm exam is an essay exam that's worth 20 points, uh, 90 minutes. Uh, ordinarily, it would be in class, but you know, I'll probably set it up to a, a timed 90 minutes, which you could do anytime, maybe over that weekend or over two days. I have to figure that out. But um, so not everyone has to be in the same room at the same time, obviously. Um, oh, and the final grade, you know, I ask, I put a lot of issues into my exams and I never expect anyone to get all of them, right? Um, ideally, you would, you know, if you get every single issue, discuss it accurately uh, with reference to the correct rules and to restate the rules uh, accurately, you get a hundred points. Nobody ever does that because I put hard issues in there sometimes. Um, so the way I, I don't do a curve, I don't expect to have a distribution where everybody's sort of in the middle and a few people are on the high end and the low end. I um, do an adjustment to the grade. So if it turns out that the highest score anyone got was 80 points out of a potential 100, I will just add 20 points to everybody and sort of raise, you know, move that window up a little bit. So uh, if, I, if 80 is the highest score, uh, I hope it'll be more than 80, but if 80 is the highest score, uh, that'll be 100 and so on. Uh, let's see. I wanna encourage you from the beginning um, to see me or to, uh, to talk to me if you have questions or if you find any of the material difficult or confusing. Uh, on the syllabus on the top of the page, there is a, a link to a website that I use to schedule appointments. And because uh, I've never found sitting in front of a computer for office hours useful, people come up with questions when they need them, right? So uh, use that website, it's very simple. Just pick out some times that, that work for you. I'll see if, uh, and it's, it has my other appointments and things blocked out. So I'll use that and I'll get back to you as soon as I can uh, and uh, choose a time to talk. Uh, but I encourage you to do that. I, I find many times um, that if I sit down with a student who's having some difficulty, I'm able to help them much better because you know, the, it, the difficulty may not be the same one that other people in the class are having. So stu student, other students may be asking questions that aren't getting at what your concern is. And unfortunately, too many students wait until after the exam to figure that out, those, to wanna to ask those questions. I encourage you to do that before, right? Come and see me, or let me introduce uh, Karthik, my uh, TA for this class, who uh, took it last semester. And Karthik is very brave. He's sitting in this class TAing, uh, having studied from a different casebook. And um, I think this casebook is much better. This is the one I've generally used. Uh, but if, if uh, if you find me intimidating or something like that, feel free to talk to Karthik and he can help you with, with problems and or he can ask me if you're, I don't know, if you're embarrassed. This is a hard time. You know, we've been, we've been at this pandemic for close to a year now. And I think it's hard on everybody. Um, so- Professor, can I just make one comment? Feel free, oh. yeah. Um, so our, our textbook had multiple choice questions embedded in it. So I'll just stress the importance of what you mentioned at the beginning of class, just practicing multiple mm. questions with that supplement that you mentioned. Good. 
Good, thank you. All right. Um, last thing I guess on policy, um, my syllabus has a fairly strict attendance policy. And if you read that closely, you might see that the, uh, the uh, um, weakness of that policy is it's almost impossible for me to, uh, to enforce uh, because it's hard for me to tell who, is, who all is in this class uh, when we're meeting. And if people choose to watch a, a video after because for whatever reason, if you're sick or something or can't make it, um, it's very hard to track that too. So uh, I do, I consider attendant, I expect you to be here for class. I think that's the way to get most out of it. Uh, but if you can't make it or if, whatever, or maybe just want to review it, uh, I will be posting all of the videos on UB Learns. And uh, so you can walk through that. I'll also post my PowerPoints. And um, I consider that attendance as well. Actually, the, the main way I have of enforcing is um, I encourage you to turn on your cameras, right? Because it's easier, I think, for everybody if we see each other's faces, certainly easier for me to see who's, uh, who looks like they have an answer and they're ready to give it. Um, but if you're camp, but like I said in the syllabus, I respect your privacy, right? I don't want to be in, you know, force myself into your home or study space or wherever you're working. Uh, so if you prefer not to have your camera on, that's fine. I would ask you if you could to turn on your camera if you're asking a question. Um, and also, I will warn you that if uh, your camera is turned off, I may be tempted to call on you to see if you're still here and awake and paying attention. So that's the policy on that. Um, again, on the, on the um, syllabus, um, let me see if I can switch to that. Okay, here's the, the syllabus. Are you still seeing that? Um, you notice on the assignments, uh, the reading assignments, not every chapter, but many of them I have uh, highlighted or bolded, especially these pages. That means uh, very honestly, you can sort of skim the rest of the chapter, uh, but pay close attention to the especially pages because that's the uh, what I think is the most important material. Now, if a chapter doesn't have an, uh, a special section, that doesn't mean you can skim the whole chapter. That means the whole chapter is important. Okay. Uh, so I've tried to go through and um, save you as much effort as I can. Uh, I think it's a good casebook. I think it's, you also find it's very clear. Uh, I like the way it's structured. It is... Um, it, uh, either, towards the beginning of each chapter, there's a breakdown of the rules that, that, that the, uh, the chapter is about um, with sort of commentary on what it means in plain English. Uh, and I'll go over that again in my lectures. And uh, I think it's very clearly organized and easy to read. Most students have enjoyed this casebook. Um, okay. All right, 
we're back. Um, also on the syllabus, you'll see that for each week, um, there is a, a section called key topics. That is, um, serves two purposes. That is to tell you what rules or which or what doctrines we'll be talking about that week. And also I will be using, I will be giving a lecture, recording a lecture on that um, the week before, like after Thursdays, after this Wednesday's class, I will record a lecture on Friday um, going over key points for next week's class, right? So you can, you should listen to that before you read uh, the chapter. Uh, I think that will give you a good orientation of what to look for, what my take on it is, and that sort of thing. Um, and let's see, any questions on any of that? No questions? Okay. Um, this, it's always hard to teach the first session of this class uh, because uh, for some reason, every case book has this sort of fuzzy material at the, at the front that's sort of like, they throw in material that the ABA expects us to teach. Things like um, the history of the legal profession and so on. And um, either it gets thrown into the front chapter or it gets tossed in the, the back and nobody gets to it. So I, I'm not gonna go into any detail about the um, um, history of the legal profession we may, it may come up from time to time in the class uh, because there is a history to these rules. And um, sometimes it's useful to understand where they come from. But I do want to spend a little bit of time. How are we doing on time? Excellent. Um, on the concept of legal ethics itself, right? I know at least one student in this class was a philosophy major uh, as an undergrad and was eager to learn about uh, uh, to talk about moral philosophy and so on. We will talk about such things a little bit. This is not a philosophy course. And um, there is no, I think, coherent philosophy to the uh, model rules of professional conduct. Um, you will notice if, if you pay attention to such things that there are different kinds of uh, rationales for different rules. Um, some rules are, uh, well, one, one difference is that there are, uh, the majority of the rules are meant to protect either clients or the public, right? Because we are a profession that serves clients and serves uh, the public in the sense that we sort of serve the justice system. Um, there are also rules though that sort of serve to uh, protect lawyers, right? Because lawyers have to make a living and, uh, You'll notice when we get to the rules on, on fees, for instance, that there is uh, a lot of wiggle room for lawyers. Um, uh, there are requirements, there are rules, but um, it leaves, a nut, leaves it uh, fairly open for lawyers to uh, devise uh, fee structures that work for them, uh, to do the, uh, there's no set numerical limits and so on. Um, so that sort of thing happens. Uh, there are certain exceptions when we get to confidentiality, there are uh, 
certain exceptions to the confidentiality rule to protect lawyers. Again, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But um, I, I nonetheless, I still call this a legal ethics course. Many places call it professional responsibility. Um, I call it legal ethics because I think ethics does play a role in here because I mean, all of you are human beings with your own set of ethics, right? Maybe you think about them a lot, maybe you don't. But you know, various points in your life, you come into situations where you have to make a choice whether you know, to do what, what seems right or seems wrong, or, or try when, when you're faced with a situation where you don't know what to do, you have to analyze it, right? So um, I'll get to, I wanna come back to that in a minute, but first of all, why do we teach legal ethics? I think it's mentioned in the first chapter, but um, let me go to this slide. And this just to show you a picture. Uh, you guys uh, were born long after Watergate. I was in high school when the Watergate scandal happened. How many of you have some idea what the Watergate scandal was about? Couple of you, good. Um, I'm not gonna go into any detail on it, um, but it was um, until this past year, it was probably the greatest scandal in uh, White House history. Uh, and it involved uh, a plan by uh, President Nixon and various people working for him to uh, employ dirty tricks to, um, wiretap the uh, Democratic National uh, Campaign Committee offices, for example, which were in the Watergate Hotel. Um, and to do that, they uh, broke in. So there were some, um, I think, former security uh, men who were hired to go in, break into this office, rifle through some files and plant wiretaps. Um, they weren't very good at it. Um, they put a, when they broke, when they opened the door to break in, they put a, a duct tape over the bolt to keep it from closing. But instead of putting it vertically, they put it around the door. So, you know, a, a passing guard was able to see it. And um, so that was the crime the initial crime, and then the cover-up began almost immediately. And it was the cover-up and the lying and the perjury about that cover-up and who advised uh, this, who led this, who directed these plans that led to eventually uh, President Nixon's downfall and many others. Um, John Dean was the White House counsel for, the, for President Nixon. And this is him testifying before Congress. And um, one thing that, that uh, certainly the legal profession took away from the Watergate scandal was that there were a heck of a lot of lawyers involved in this up to their neck. And at one point, uh, John Dean was uh, testifying and he had a document that the, uh, the Congressional Committee also had and a list of names. And I think the uh, committee chairman asked uh, Mr. Dean, what are these, you know, we have the list of names and some of them have asterisks by them. What does that mean? And uh, Dean said, well, I was just 
I noted that those are all the those are all people who are lawyers, and there were over twenty lawyers on who engaged in criminal activity, advised and on, on criminal activity, uh, helped direct criminal activity. So um, that was a that was a scandal sort of within the profession, and that the repercussions from that are why ABA. Uh, ABA accredited law schools have to have to teach legal ethics now. Also, that's part of why we have a an MPRE exam now. Uh, before Watergate, legal ethics was taught sort of uh, informally, if at all, in law schools. After that, uh, every law school is required to teach it, and so that's why we're here. That's not the whole reason, but that's always, that's part of it. And that's always sort of uh, mentioned Watergate as sort of uh, maybe the, the trigger that caused these changes in the legal profession. And um, why did that happen? Why, why teaching legal ethics? I guess there were some people thought, well, maybe these lawyers just didn't know what the rules were if they never taught them in school, or maybe they didn't understand them. Um, I don't know if that's enough to explain uh, unethical behavior, but um, that raises a question that sort of brings us back, I think, to the question of what do we mean by legal ethics, right? Um, so let me ask for, for some volunteers. Where do people, ordinary people in their ordinary lives or their work lives get, where do you get your ethics from? Where do you get your ethical values from? Uh, Stephen? Your family, your parents. Okay, your family. Uh, Gianna? Um, for some people, God or religion. God and religion. Frank? Uh, through school as well. Some classes also teach ethics as well. For example, mm -hmm. I, I was in law school in Colombia. I, I have philosophy. They teach me a little bit of ethics as well, so that happens. Mm -hmm. Good. So yeah, those are the I think the main things, and also also from your peers, right? Um, you learn lessons from uh, your friends and and people you work with, and so on. Um, but is that are those and those those can be more or less formal rules uh, sometimes. Um, particularly if a member of a church uh, or uh, some kind of faith tradition, there may be ethical rules, moral rules that um, some uh, are some less so. Um, your parents teach you values. Uh, they may not be good values all the time. Uh, people have different kinds of families, right? Um, but that's sort of, so, so what role does that play? I mean, that plays a role in your, in your decisions from time to time, right? Whether to do something or not to do something, right? Um, legal ethics is different, right? And legal ethics, you can also uh, compare it to um, professional ethics or say business ethics. Anybody studied business ethics? No? No JD MBA people in the room? Okay. I have not studied business ethics in great detail, but from what I have seen 
uh, and the little reading that I've done is that business ethics um, seems to boil down to two things. One is sort of um, professional courtesy or a, a sense of uh, fairness and uh, respect for other business people and customers and so on. So the sort of um, uh, civility maybe. Um, things like, and, and also things like, uh, you know, don't uh, overbill your firm for travel expenses and so on. Um, the other part of it is, the other part of business ethics seems to be obeying the law. That business people should in fact obey the laws, uh, not always try to get around them. Uh, legal ethics is a little different, right? Um, legal ethics, well, um, let's see. What do you think legal ethics means? Any, any thoughts in the room? What does it mean to you? Other than the class you have to take. Let's see, Megan? I would say that legal ethics is a higher standard of ethical behavior than a typical like societal imposition of ethics um, because you're given a position of arguably power and authority over the conduct and circumstances a, a citizen may find themselves in. I think eth like legal ethics has to be a higher standard. Okay, higher standard. Um, could be. Uh, Deborah, do you have your hand up? Yeah, I would, um, I would identify it as what is right or wrong within the profession of um, being a lawyer, what is considered mm -hmm. right and wrong within, yeah, within that profession. All right, so there, there's, a, there's a distinct uh, sense that maybe rules for lawyers may be not just higher, but different than for other people. Uh, Mitchell? Yeah, I think one of the ways, at least in, in terms of like the structure of legal ethics that's different is like a lot of the ethical rules in other professions are written by lawyers. And it's 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 very similar, obviously, in, in the legal world as well. So I think that's sort of an odd dichotomy in a way that the same people that are writing the ethical code and figuring out what is ethical are actually lawyers themselves. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that, but I guess like to, to the extent that a business or corporation might have a code of an ethical code for their work or something, it's often advised and written by lawyers uh, and often with the goal of, of preventing liability, right? Uh, preventing uh, people in that corporation from doing things that might result in uh, the company, company being sued. Uh, Constantine. Uh, yeah, I guess I see it more as a, a set of norms and, and rules, if, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I would say in some instances they are norms, but in many instances they are definitely rules um, that you can be disciplined for and punished for. Um, but that's a that's a good point. Though I think they're both at play. Brian, 
was just going to say it's in some ways it's a process of balancing your personal and professional obligations um, where they may co conflict. Okay. And Anthony? Uh, I think in a certain sense, ethics is like a, a duty imposed by deciding to enter a profession um, that deals with our legal system and the um, faith that the public is supposed to have in the legal system. Mm -hmm. So that's a good point. Yeah, traditionally, uh, and this goes back, I mean, in, in history, uh, there are certain distinguishing marks that make a the, uh, demarcate a job as a profession. Right. And um, you go back to the Middle Ages, which is always fun. There were three professions. There was uh, medicine, law and clergy. Those were the three professions. Um, and then over time, they expanded. Uh, and that's a whole fascinating history in itself. There's a lot of so, there's a lot of interesting sociological literature on how professions develop. But one of the ideas of uh, what distinguishes, what makes a lawyer a professional and perhaps a plumber, not a member of a profession, you know, I mean, not to uh, demean plumbers, but plumbers are, uh, they have to obey the law like anybody else. Uh, they, you know, we hope that they act ethically and so on but they're not regulating themselves in the way that lawyers do and the way that uh, physicians do. Um, so yeah, law, the, the model rules that we'll be talking about are written by lawyers uh, and in, uh, but also, this is sort of a, a sneak preview, but no, the model rules do not have any legal authority on anybody. Right. They're model rules. They're drafted by the ABA uh, and published in, say, states. Um, we highly recommend these rules for governing your legal profession. And then states, and as it is now, I think California was the last one to adopt some version of the model rules. So different states have different, slightly different versions. Um, so in real life, I mean, when you're in practice, you would look to the New York rules or whatever state you're practicing in. Um, but we, we study the model rules because that's what the MPRE, MPRE is about. And if you, can, if you can understand the model rules, you can understand, I think, any state's version of the rules. And the way a state adopts the rules is typically uh, a, a committee of the bar will uh, maybe make uh, revisions and present that to the court and then the court finally adopts the rules. So in the last, you know, ultimately in most states, lawyers are regulated by the courts. Certainly that's the way it is in New York by the uniform uh, unified court system. In some states, uh, the bar regulates itself but that's I think more unusual. Um, so stepping back again, so if we think of professional or uh, if we think of legal ethics as a type of ethics, uh, how, what can we teach? How much of that can be taught? Can ethics be taught? Uh, Stephen? So I'm doing the first reading assignment and it kind of struck me that 
you know, studying ethics, okay, yeah, you can learn the rules and everything, but it's a lot to me, like, I don't know if anyone here is old enough and took D.A.R.E., uh, drug abuse resistance education. And for a lot of kids, it was like, oh, great. Now I know how to do the things with the things that I shouldn't want to do. Uh, but uh, so I, I, I'm struck by this kind of sense of, yeah, we're learning what the rules are. But if you kind of don't get at like that person's moral compass, like, great, you've learned the rules, but what good does that do? All right. Um, let's see, Mitchell, what do you think? Yeah, kind of along the similar lines. Like, I think, I think you can learn what the whatever the rules are in your given jurisdiction, and, and you sort of learn how to abide by them. But I don't know, like, by learning it, I feel like I feel like ethics comes from something other than just the rules themselves. I think in order to be an ethical lawyer, like, for example, I feel like perhaps there's conduct that you shouldn't do, even though there isn't a rule about it, or you know, there's there might be a rule about it, but you know you can get close to doing, or you can get close to breaking the rule without breaking it doesn't mean you should sort of thing. So I think there's, mm -hmm. there's definitely a, a tension between the rules versus actual ethical conduct. Well, uh, we'll see, uh, thank you for that. As we'll see as we go through the rules that there are some that are should, like you, like you suggested that, that say a lawyer should do something. Um, and there are other rules that say a lawyer shall, which means a lawyer is required to. It's a violation of the rules and the lawyer is subject to uh, professional discipline if they don't do that. Should generally means that the lawyer has some discretion and some choice, right? Sarah. Yes, I feel similar. I think that um, just as with moral ethics, that is like people learn through their socialization. I think if ethics is legal ethics is taught in a practical manner that allows the students to, you know, experience real life situations where those ethics might apply, then they can certainly be learned and they can also be unlearned as well as the person goes um, along in life. If they're doing something adverse to what they have been taught in school, then it can definitely be learned and it can be unlearned as well. Um, that's a good point. In fact, I, there have been studies, or at least a study, um, of the, the, the legal profession that suggests that um, one of the biggest influences on a lawyer's uh, ethic, ethics throughout the career is where they first got, where they got their first job, what law firm they first worked in, right? What was the culture in that firm? Was it was a firm that promoted ethical conduct or that cut corners? Um, so it's important to think about that uh when you are uh in work uh frank and then lewis and then constantine and then I'll, I, that'll be it yeah i just think it's necessary thing to 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 be taught uh, especially because i think the law the, this profession it deals with a lot of conflict of interests and and watching the model by, by just reading the model rules there are some situations where you will be dealing with something that you might consider discriminatory or something that might be considered uh, self-interest. So if you see like the, the model, the, the, the rules, and you see there's comments that deal with those situations, I think those are important because you will deal daily with a law firm that may have a kind of interest that might be in conflict with, an, with another community. So I think 
mainly because of the profession itself, because we deal every time with humans, we deal with, with people and, and there, there will be always a client relationship. So that's why I consider that it's important to be, to be taught. So. Okay, and, and it's good that you sing, you, you pointed out uh, conflict of interest, because that is the, the biggest part of the casebook, the biggest part of this course, and in many ways, the most difficult part too. Uh, so that's why we spend a lot of time on, on that, on those topics. Lewis? Yeah, I think people follow the rules for different reasons. They follow one because they just want to know how close they can get to the line and not get in trouble. And two, uh, or they're just really conscious about their moral values and stuff. So as long as the rules are being followed, regardless of the motivations in some situations, there's still a social good, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Constantine? So, yeah, I guess I, I feel that uh, a lot of these rules could be untaught to people. And I, I know that uh, they cited Professor Kimberly Kirkland in our textbook as, uh, and her study as an example of that. And that, um, I don't know, maybe it's kind of sad that we're all supposed to be taught to follow rules. That's the whole point of the profession. And yet lawyers often don't do that. So that's a part of it. But I also wonder if, a, the wrong people are entering the field, and B, maybe we're not enforcing these rules enough. And I think the article you sent on perhaps disbarring Ted Cruz spoke to that, which in my own biased opinion, I completely agreed with. But even if you don't agree with that, there are other examples of people who probably got to go. Yeah, I, I, I shared that article with you. I hope everybody read it. It's fairly, it's, it's a blog entry. Um, but it's, it, it sort of repeats a lot of what most, most many of you have said already, but sort of puts it in um, in law professor speak, you know, it puts in the context of moral philosophy and, and uh, Plato and Aristotle and so on. And um, I think makes the point that, yes, you can teach rules. That's one thing you can teach in a legal ethics course. You can teach rules, awareness of the rules, um, perhaps uh, advice on how to comply with the rules, but you can't teach ethical values, can you? Ethical values can be learned. Like I said, you, uh, a lot of students pick up a lot of their ethical values from the first uh, job they work at. Um, so lawyers can learn values, but not necessarily the same things. Those values aren't necessarily the same things that we teach them in law school, right? Um, so, um, when we're, so in this course, okay, uh, we're going to be talking about both of those kinds of questions. Uh, there will be questions where you're asked to uh, decide reading a fact situation, reading the rules and the comments, what uh, should you do? What do they, ex what do the rules require of a lawyer or what choices does a lawyer have? What, what are a lawyer's options? And another question we'll ask from time to time is what would you do, right? Um, because legal ethics uh, I, I forget who it was that said that it's a higher standard. In some ways, legal ethics can be a, seem to be a lower standard than other uh, people, right? Th 
there are instances where lawyers are maybe not supposed to lie, but may in some instances hide the truth, right? Hide facts. That's why we have um, attorney-client privilege. Uh, instances where uh, lawyers may not be permitted to divulge something because of the rules of confidentiality, even if it might, uh, if not divulging that might seem to cause harm for some people, right? And again, there are, there are rules on that, but there are things that many people would look at and say, how can a lawyer do that? How can they do what they did there? How can they, how can they defend people like that? Um, but it's, it's the particular set of, of values and the, the, the values of the legal profession and what it exists for that uh, can cause those rules to differ. And one thing I will ask sometimes is um, the, law, the rules say this, it, it, it may be clear that this is what you should do, but maybe you, that feels wrong. It may be wrong to your, for your personal ethical views. How do you handle that, right? Um, so I'll, I'll ask you those questions from time to time, and there are different ways of answering it. Uh, one thing I'll mention about uh, conflicts of interest, which I said it's it may, it's made in many ways the hardest uh, material in the in this course. Uh, it is hard in two ways. One is that it's it's confusing. There are a lot of different uh, intersections of different conflicts rules. Excuse me. And it can be hard to just figure out what they what they require. And another they can also be hard because um, it can be hard for a person to do, right? One of the consequences of a conflict of interest may mean that you have to withdraw from representing a client. It might be a very lucrative uh, remunerative client. So you you have to consider not just the conflict of interest maybe between two clients or a client and a former client, but also um, a and a conflict between what the rule re clearly requires you to do and your self-interest, your interest, the interest of your firm, you know, the fact that you're going to be paying student loans and you need you need those uh, clients, those fees and so on. Um, so sometimes a rule can be hard just because it's 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 a uh, it's a, a hard choice for a human being to make. And I will suggest sometimes I will certainly uh, entertain the idea that um, there can be a sort of a conscientious objection to a rule in a particular instance, right? But I, I will say that from my perspective, and I think um, many lawyers, ethicists would say, um, uh, trying to get around a rule or hiding conduct or something like that may not be, I mean, conscientious objection could be ethical. You could decide to uh, say the rule requires this, but I'm going to do that and I'm going to face the consequences, right? Uh, which could be whatever sort of discipline the bar might impose, right? Um, that, that would be my take on it. So if, if, there's, if it's something where you're willing to take the consequences, maybe you could justify that. Uh, if, you just, if you decide you're not going to follow a rule just because of your own personal self-interest, I would have a lot harder time justifying that.
And I think most ethics committees would feel the same. Um, I wanna talk for just a few minutes about the, um, uh, the bar exam and the character and fitness questionnaire. Anybody familiar, aware of that? Anyone filled that out yet? Some, when I was in law school in, in Missouri, you, you could fill out the, the character and fitness form in your first year uh, to get that underway. Uh, I think in New York, everybody waits till after graduation. Um, but one of the things they do is look at your past conduct, right? And one of the, let me point this out because rule 8.1, this is the one, first one we're gonna talk about, but 8.1 is the only rule that applies to law students. None of these other rules apply to you as lawyers. You don't have the responsibilities uh, and you're not subject to discipline under these rules until you become a lawyer. But what rule 8.1 requires is truthfulness, right? In making your ap application for admission to the bar. So it applies not only to law students, but lawyers from another jurisdiction who are taking the New York bar and so on. Um, so a lawyer, an applicant may not knowingly make a false statement of material fact, right? So you can't lie, right? That is um, sort of the simplest restatement of that. You can't lie on a bar ad, uh, application. Although looking at more closely as like a lawyer, um, notice that there are a couple of sort of wiggle words right there. You may not do so knowingly, right? So you can't be punished uh, or disciplined for unknowingly saying something that was untrue. However, if you then become to come to know that it was untrue, section B says, well, then you have to disclose it. Uh, and then secondly, is it has to be a, a false statement of material fact, right? And we don't have a definition of material in the model rules, but material, what does that mean? Generally means an important fact. Right, so um, maybe if you put a uh, put out an incorrect date on your application form, that is unlikely to be a material fact. So it may not be something you need to disclose, although it doesn't hurt to do that. But um, you could read that rule and say and think, uh, well, here's something that I did not state accurately, uh, but it's trivial. It's not relevant to anything. Um, and then you're sort of making a making a gamble, you know, that the uh, a bar a board of legal examiners agrees that that was a trivial fact, right? So even there, you have to make that choice and decide whether you want to take a narrow reading of that rule or a broader reading and say, well, you know, apply it to anything that seems like a fact that you misstated. Okay, so the every state has a, a character and fitness test. And um, I think the New York form is about 24 pages long or so. And uh, the, every state, I think, asks a question, something like the one in problem 1-1. One -one. Okay. Um, 
And we can certainly ask again, I mean, does a character and fitness application or form, what does that tell us about a lawyer's uh, moral character? Does it tell us anything about a lawyer's moral character? Um, there have been lawyers who uh, are applicants who had committed felonies, um, even you know homicides, um, and were then able to take uh, to uh, uh, apply for admission and, and be accepted to the bar. If that had, in those sorts of cases, that means that, that the applicant committed the crime, went to prison for a long time, came out, they served their time has demonstrated a uh, good character in the years since then, and maybe has applied five or six times. But it is possible even for in that instance uh, to be admitted to the bar. Other, others have been, been denied admission because of um, repeated bankruptcies uh, or other relatively trivial things. Um, so this, that's what this problem is about. It asks um, a common question. Um, so what I wanna do is I'm gonna break you now up now into your small groups and give you five or six minutes to discuss the problem. And for each of you, how would you answer the question, right? The question being, um, how would you answer this question about uh, current drug use for, a large, for someone who's taken Adderall? All right, so I'm gonna break you up and then I will call you back in and I'll call on a few people to talk about how you decide to answer that. And um, I'm not asking anyone to disclose information about themselves, certainly not, but um, Maybe put, your, put yourself in the position of the student in this problem, right? And if you were that student, what would you do? Or maybe uh, think of, uh, put yourself in the situation of, if that student came for me advice, to me for advice, how would I advise this applicant to answer the, the question? Okay, questions about that? Okay. Uh, with any luck, this will work flawlessly. And um, here we go. So Karthik, what do you think so far? Uh, no, I, I like the way that you formatted the class this time, I think. I, I think incorporating the, the little quizzes will be helpful, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I switch back and forth casebooks. Um, even a, a casebook like this that I, I like, uh, I, there are points where I say, I, there are things I would like to try a little differently. And yeah. then I try another casebook and I hate it. And then I run back to this one. Um, and yeah, I just uh, reading. use it with a new appreciation. Oh yeah, just doing the first reading, I, I can tell this. This case mm -hmm. is, is better, but the one uh, I didn't, I practiced using the multiple choice questions that were in the other textbook. So that particular okay. aspect of that textbook, I found helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. This one I noticed. I mean, what, yeah. what I liked about the other book is that, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, that it goes into a little more depth about um, 
the the history and the doctrine behind behind the rules and why the rules are what they are and how they vary from one state to another. But at the end, you, you very, it's hard to come up with a clear sense of okay, what does the rule say? You know, what is going to be examined on? What's going to be on the NPRE? And uh, that's important. So that's that's why I keep going back to this one. That's funny that you say that because because in the other textbook the the citations were in the footnotes, right? So you go to the footnotes, and then I I, I don't know if other students were doing this, but I would go back to the the relevant section of the restatement or the the model rules and then read that. So that, that just added to <coughs> So I think I, we haven't gotten to a portion that has the model rules or the restatement yet, but I think once we do, that'll be that'll be helpful. Mm. And I picked up the book today, so. Good. Yep. Oh, I, I, I'll i need that back at the end of the semester for my, for next year. Yeah. So how are you doing? Good, good, everything's good. Um, yeah, so all my classes are online. Actually, I take it back, there's one class that's in person, one credit course. Uh, it's called IP litigation, so that'll be interesting. Mm -hmm. But other than that, everything's online, so. Just hanging out at home. Yeah. What about with you? Everything good? Um, I'm doing really well. I, I, I see. I think a lot of the adjunct faculty aren't comfortable with the technology and so prefer to do online. Yeah. Because uh, we, all those of us who are in the building, or you know, had all kinds of resources at this given point, to us yeah. to learn how to use UB Learns and so on. Right. Um, yeah. Um, you staying safe and healthy? Yeah, so my, my stepdad is a is a teacher. So apparently the teachers were able to get the vaccine early. So he yeah. he was able to get the vaccine. And my grandparents just got scheduled for the month of February to get the vaccine. So they'll be getting it. So hopefully young people are next. <laughs> well, I hope I don't get skipped. I, I'm I'm just short of the 65 uh, uh, cutoff, yeah. Threshold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay. Do you know any of the students in the class? Most of them. Yeah. They're all in our Good. My grade. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, I know uh, my other TAs uh, have told me that, you know, they don't get a lot of emails from students. Uh, well, this was, okay. This was a year ago. Um, so this has been, would have been before, uh, before the pandemic, but um she said that she didn't get a lot of emails from students asking for help, but she would run them into the, they run into her in the hallways and so on. Um, and ask, well, what about this thing that Professor Millis talked about? I imagine um, it'll be like that, but obviously not the hallways. They'll maybe shoot me yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can so, I so I'm glad you can, you can, I'm glad you can be, be here for the class. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Can I, can I ask, why did you, so you had four TAs last semester. Was that purely because of our group? Problems. Have four TAs? Right. It was Andrew um, and uh, Keith Cronenberg, right? And I think no, partly because I, I was I was doing a lot more multiple choice questions on okay. my and that was the main duty that they had is to write lots of multiple choice questions for me to build up a, a question bank. Got it. Um, and I'm going, I'm de-emphasizing the multiple choice questions on on my part and encouraging students to do them on their own. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Just curious. Mm -hmm. Will you want me uh, in the future just popping into these rooms or just? I I, I have decided not to pop in. Uh, well, maybe maybe uh, 
maybe top, pop into a few briefly um, to see if anybody needs help. I don't, but I don't stay along if they seem to be productive. Okay. You know, um, just curious. Mm -hmm. But you can, we can do that. Um, maybe I'll, I'll start from the top. You start from the bottom. Okay. And just spend a couple minutes. I, pop. You I should be able to, to join. I don't want to screw with your plan. I was just, I was just curious. That's fine. Yeah, but again, like don't don't intrude. Just sort of see if they need help, or if they're at, if they ask for help, uh, or ask a question, and then uh, and otherwise just go on and go to the next room. Just make yourself available. All right. I don't even know how to get, how to do it now. <laughs> I'm looking at the breakout rooms in progress, and it. I don't know how to do it. I should be able to do it. You did it with us, so. Maybe I need I, maybe I need to change because they change they change the settings sometimes. I might need to go back and look at that because I'm okay. not able to pop in either. All right, sounds good. <clears throat> and you have access. I sent you the. Um, you have access to the box folder. So I'll be updating the questions in that in that document. Yeah, thank you. Well, here we go. I see it. All right. Um, yeah, if you're if you're in that uh, window that says breakout rooms in progress, if you put the the cursor on the number of how many members there are it changes to join. So I could join group one and see what they're doing. I don't see that, that do box. I don't have breakout um, progress. Oh, I didn't make, I haven't made you co-host yet. That's why. Ah, okay. I forgot to do that. I'm sorry. That's all right. Now you should be able to, to do that now. Breakout rooms. All right, did you want me to do it now then? Yeah, give that a try. Okay. All right.
Well, we got almost everybody is here. Can you hear me? I was muted before. Yes. Okay. Um, all right. Do you have enough time to work through that problem a little bit? Let me start. Um, I go uh, randomly with from this list. Heather Bashaw. Did I did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. <laughs> so, how did you answer this question? Uh, we came up with that the person should report that they are using um, that they had used the Adderall. You know, it is, although it was three weeks ago was the last time they had used, that's still pretty current. Um, and although you know, in here where it's saying they weren't sure it was a controlled substance, you know, at the same time, they also knew they didn't have a prescription for it. So, um, mm -hmm. and they had to buy it from a friend. So we just thought it was in mm -hmm. the person's best to explain their use, like how infrequent or frequent it was. It doesn't sound like it was continual everyday use. And then um, we see, so yeah, we thought it was to their benefit to reveal that information. Mm -hmm. What did the, um, let's see, um, Ashley? What did, your, what, did, what did you think? We came up with the same conclusion that uh, they should um, put it on the, on the thing that they'd use the, on the application that they'd used Adderall, despite the okay. misdemeanor potential consequences. Did anybody uh, answer differently? Deborah? So we were between two options. Um, one was just saying no in general, and that's because I was relying on the definition of what was currently, which is um, an ongoing impairment. And I doubt there's an ongoing impairment three weeks after using Adderall um, or pleading the fifth. Okay, uh, Franco? Yeah, we were on the on the same page and uh, there was breaker room. We were in between saying no because it's not current or pleading the fifth, but we ended up deciding to plead the fifth because if we play with the definition of current, it's kind of vague. So we don't mm -hmm. know how the committee may react to this. And since it is a, a misdemeanor in the state to use, uh, to obtain illegal controlled substances, uh, we may be facing uh, criminal prosecution. So we decided to plead the fifth. Mm -hmm. One thing that they throw in, um, as you're working on the problem is that uh, in the actual Iowa statute, uh, there is, it defines currently in such a way that it, it's, um, it, uh, it asks, asks specifically about going back three years as is currently. So that you can't, you can't get around that argument. Uh, Gianna? So one thing that uh, we were thinking, um, is that so say this person were to say no i haven't used adderall clearly they have right say they've used it like three ish times throughout like their entire law school career would obviously that would be a lie right but mm -hmm. would that be a material fact if, if if basically if the use was so infrequent and used for you know things that were not directly you know competing against other students like say you took an adderall to like make outlines or do other things like that and you don't, it didn't, you know, misrepresent your entire body of academic work. I feel like you could at least maybe get around rule 8.1, but it seems like, it seems like it depends on how much you use it. If you use it all the time and it's the kind of thing that you're relying on it to complete the level of work that you've been doing, then it seems like a, a much more material lie than if, you know, it was once every 
blue moon. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned material. So you're you're going you are following the the terminology of the rule. So basically, you're saying that's that's not a material fact. Um, it depends on on your on the person's usage, but in this situation, it, mm -hmm. I would say maybe not. <clears throat> yeah. Anybody see a problem with that argument? Well, you'd have to, uh, oh, Rachel? Yeah, I don't know why, but it won't give me the option to raise my hand, so sorry uh, about that. <laughs> I just did this. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that maybe the problem that I see with that um, would be, why is it up to the student to decide what's material? You know, I would say that the best, the most ethical course, if that's what you want to adhere to, would be to disclose it you know, give context and then let them decide if that's material or not. Because, you know, this this rumor that you get denied, um, you know, but I don't know, but that's just a rumor. And uh, I don't know, I just feel like it's up to the, the admissions committees is the one who should be deciding if something's material or not. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So, um, Frank? Yeah, I was. I, I wanted also to add something that Gianna said about like the because I also was like analyzing the, the material facts, but I was also analyzing like if if the student is is like taking Adderall with no prescriptions or something, how about the side effects of that drug? So that wouldn't be like a material fact. That wouldn't be something that can impair him to practice that profession. So that would be also a good question, I think, just to say, okay. If, if he's he's not having any prescriptions because he just took the, the Adderall, you gotta consider also the side effects of that if the, of that drug that can affect that specific person. Not just the quantity of how much you, you mm -hmm. are taking Adderall, but also what can also affect him. Okay. Um, what, for, let's see, I'll ask you and Rachel both, uh, if you take that sort of approach and say, well, I'm going to, I don't think it's a material fact. So therefore I will, I will, I, I can honestly say no to this question, right? Um, how confident are you that that would, that the board of law examiners would agree with that? Should I go first? Yeah. Um, well, if, if you were to assume that it was not material. Um, I mean, I, I just think, okay, look, realistically, there's probably lots of law students that do this. Um, mm -hmm. And realistically, probably hear. none of them actually disclose it. Like if we're being real, come on, you're not gonna, it's so easy to lie about because how are they ever gonna find out? Like, th that's probably like what most people would be thinking going into this. But I mean, I still think that um, you, you'd be lying to yourself if you thought that they wouldn't, uh, that, that it's completely immaterial because then you're literally starting off your law career by lying. I mean, I'm not saying that that's like horrible, but that's mm -hmm. what you're doing. You're not, you're not, you know, you, you can, you can phrase, you can, you know, you can justify it to yourself, but you are omitting something that they specifically asked for. And the, the terms are so clearly laid out about like the timeline of when you were using them. Um, you were buying pills from someone without a prescription. Like you can't say you didn't know that was not legal. 
come on, you're in law mm -hmm. school. Um, so, I mean, it just is a matter of like, if you're okay starting off uh, by lying or if, you know, because if, if, I think people who do this probably just don't think it's that big a deal and that's totally fine. But you, you're, you're honestly just like justifying it to yourself if you are not disclosing it. Because if you are read the question carefully on the thing, they clearly want to know yes or no if you did this. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I like. I'm glad that you the last part too. Um, so you said that you're you're rationalizing it. So that that's one question of, of, about answering this question is, uh, are you saying that? Well, I sat down, I looked at the rule, and I tried to figure out what what material fact meant, and I think it means uh, it would not include this. Or is are you rationalizing? Right? Are you say, are you going to your conclusion? I don't want to say. I don't want to admit. So how can I rationalize an argument for that, right? That's a different, those are two different things. Um, let's see, Brian and then Pat. I am, um, maybe this isn't particularly relevant to this exact fact pattern, but I thought that there were sort of questions about, um, is this a, a lawful demand? Um, is this like an invasion of somebody's mental health privacy? So there could be quite, there could be issues of like equitable access to healthcare. Maybe you're taking a prescription because you couldn't get it. You know, it's easier for you. You need it, so you're you're getting it from somebody, but not from your doctor because you don't have a doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also questions of like what was illegal three years ago might not be illegal anymore if it was marijuana, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, in previous editions, this was a, this question was about marijuana. You know, so mm -hmm. um, I, I was sort of so there may be no consequences to lying about this, but uh, but mm -hmm. ethically, is that the right thing to do? I think I was leaning towards taking the fifth, um, just just because um, I could sort of construct a moral argument for not divulging the information. Mm -hmm. And you can also, I mean, I think you're heading towards a legal argument that this question may be improper because of various federal statutes or maybe even uh, constitutional uh, privacy protections. Right. Um, you could make that argument. Right. right. And there are, there are cases where uh, states have been sued on that basis and have had to change their questions. Uh, Patrick. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting just reading the entire fact pattern that towards the end, on at the top of page 35, it said, having learned everything about Adderall and the, the legal consequences, he says, he certainly won't take any more Adderall, at least not until you're admitted to the bar. So it doesn't sound like he learned a lesson of sorts in a way. Yeah. So I, did, I just thought that like yeah. said something about maybe about his ethics or his <clears throat> morals just going off of that, but I mean, I know you're, well, supposed, to, I know you're supposed to approach it from your, yourself, your own perspective, yeah. but yeah, I just thought that mm -hmm. was interesting. No, that's a good point. I mean, so, and you could ask yourself and you don't have to divulge to me, uh, but I mean, yeah. how would you answer it? Would you take that sort of narrow legalistic approach to the rule right. and say, um, I think I can answer, uh, you know, I, I can honestly in my own heart say uh, no, and I certainly will never do it again. Um, but who knows if that's going to happen. Dan, go ahead. 
Go ahead. And then Dan is the last question. Yeah, I just want to say I got a little bit confused about the use of material fact. I mean, the question is, uh, are you currently or have you been in the last three years engaged in the Ill illegal use of drugs? So like the argument that was being made earlier with frequency and stuff, like it doesn't really ask about frequency. It doesn't really ask for your opinion about the question. And like, I'm, mm -hmm. I think I'm in agreement with those arguments. So like, I don't like the question at all. Like recreational mm -hmm. drug use is fine. Uh, I think in most circumstances, but like, um, you know, it's just, I, I don't know, our group mm -hmm. said honesty is the best policy. Just let's be honest and just hope for the best. We, we uh, briefly, we went against using the Fifth Amendment because like, uh, like you could almost like make the reader imagine it's worse, like using Adderall to cope with like the stresses of law school is different from like having a cocaine problem, but like the Fifth Amendment like leaves it to the imagination. So, um, you know, we, that's what we thought about anyway. Right, so I mean, there seems to be a risk if you plead the fifth, because uh, the release the rumor is that someone who, uh, oh, and actually, the rumor doesn't say anything about that, but there's a rumor that someone answered, admitted to it, and then was denied admission to the bar. Um, I mean, that probably would not happen in, in actual point of fact that they that uh, I don't know about Iowa, but in uh, uh, more enlightened states, perhaps, um, the board would probably uh, ask some more questions, maybe call you in for an in, uh, interview and ask uh, about, you know, what kind of, what was your drug use and so on. And um, so it might, it might end up as simply delaying your uh, application to the bar. Because um, certainly people do admit, and one thing they, that, that the, the boards look at extremely harshly is lying. If it's discovered, right? Um, it's it's that that is. If you look at what are the key values of a, a legal profession, uh, not using drugs may not be one of them, but honesty is, right? So this is this maybe really is a question about your ability to be candid with um, with with the profession, right? When it's when it's necessary. One thing. Um, well, two answers that I that, that always come up in not just this uh, problem, but others is, um, well, no one will find out, right? Uh, that's never a good response to an ethical question. Um, and also there is a risk that someone could find out. Maybe, you know, um, the person who sold the student uh, the Adderall admitted to it and maybe named names, you know, and then if you, uh, if the student here uh, denied it on their form, that's going to be that's going to be a problem. Um, pleading the fifth. Um, so this is just a wrap up here. Uh, one of the authors they've been they've had this problem in the book for years, varying it a little bit. But uh, a few years ago, one of the authors called the Iowa Board of Law Examiners and asked whether anyone had ever admitted to drug use. And if so, how they responded. And uh, the chair of the, of the board said, we've had people say yes, we've had people say no, and we've had people take the Fifth Amendment. And then right after that, he says, now that I think about it, I don't recall any time where an applicant said yes. And he said, maybe the clerk of the court, was, Supreme Court would have further info. And so the clerk of the court reported that um, occasionally applicants do admit to drug use, 
And in what in that case, they bring the applicant in for oral examination. Um, and the application might be denied or uh, delayed. Um, but he couldn't recall anyone actually being denied admission for simply answering yes to, to that question. Um, he said that occasionally uh, applicants do invoke the Fifth Amendment. They get called in for a, a review before a three panel member of the board. And invariably, he says they uh, waive the Fifth Amendment and say, yeah, I did. I did use some drugs um, during, during that informal hearing. So this is just, I mean, it's just a, a threshold kind of question about, because uh, we'll have similar issues coming up throughout the, the, the semester. Um, and so I was saying one one question, one answer that's never a good answer in the ethics question is no one will find out. Uh, another one is, well, it wasn't a bad violation. Uh, and we'll talk more about, about that later. Um, any comments about this, this exercise or the class so far? Okay, um, I will usually be online here a few minutes before class starts, and I'm certainly happy to hang around after if anybody does have questions. And um, so thank you. I really appreciate uh, the participation and the turnout. So again, and again, if you have any questions anytime, you can email me, you can ask me for an appointment to meet with me online. I'm happy to work with all of you. Okay. So I think that's enough for today, and I'll see you all again on Wednesday. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have a quick question about the the final and the and mm -hmm. the meter. In the syllabus, it doesn't say whether it is open book or not. Oh, thank you. It is. It's it's open book. It's I, I give, uh, yeah, I give open book questions and um, I sort of feel that I need to because I know that um, some of you may have electronic versions of the casebook and it's hard to do uh, an exam and close, you know, and ex close that off if it's going to be an open book. So I, I, I just do an open book and try and write questions that even if someone did try to, to cheat and search online, it's not gonna help them. Okay, okay. And the okay. multiple choice ones, the five multiple choice as well? Those, uh, yeah, because they're on, again, they're online as well. I'd be doing those they're on, on Learns. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. Sure. Anybody else? I just had like a comment on the, on the Adderall thing that we were doing. Um, the casebook talked about how these character tests come at like the worst time because you've already expended three years of your life practicing exactly. or going to law school mm -hmm. and you've already gone into it for most students a significant amount of debt. So, I mean, we were, we were discussing a little bit in our group, like standing in the shoes of a person that was told they have a 50-50 shot of their application being denied over using Adderall once or twice during their law school career it would seem almost to tip the scale and just saying no, uh, because after you've gone into so much debt to, to be denied 
positive. Mm-hmm. Would be would almost seem unfair to the to, to the individual at that at that, at that point. So it, it seems mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like the the purpose of these questions are are fulfilling their purpose when they're being asked after the 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 um, consequences are so high. Yeah, and I mean honestly, it's unclear why why states still ask that question because it's a it's a very broad question and. Um, they don't seem to, many of them don't seem to take it that seriously. Um, like, you know, in, in Iowa, there, well, some people say yes, some people say no. Um, they didn't seem to have, uh, like, statistics on that or anything. It's just, um, they're slow to change, you know. Um, and they could, like, they could list if he'd any taken any of these drugs or, or anything. Like, uh, and when you, when you get to, uh, in practice, you know, uh, even the fact that a lawyer is taking drugs is not a violation of the ethical rules. Uh, violations can occur if uh, that drug use impairs their ability to serve clients, right? So then that would lead to violations of various rules. But um, simply taking drugs, well, I mean, if, they, if they're illegal drugs, yeah, there's that, there's that. There. But um, It's um, if I mean yes, I, I'm I don't know where I was going with that, but um, the fact of being in uh, oh someone who's at, who who drinks right that it's a it's that is legal right uh, they may be impaired from time to time maybe they they get to where they can't drive at home uh, drive home at night but as long as they're not as long as they're meeting all their deadlines filing deadlines. Um, not missing anything, doing their lawyer work adequately, there's no violation. Okay. Hey, I just had a question about those uh, pre-recorded lectures. That are, th- are those going to start this for the following week? You'll you'll do that. Yeah. For like okay. Yes, I'll record this Friday, and and it'll be posted for next week's class. Okay, and that like covers the Monday and Wednesday material. Right. And it's good to just re- watch that. Pr- so I won't prior. cover. I won't cover all the material. Uh, but but just I'll like highlight. Yeah, okay. and maybe things that I think are are difficult. I'll I'll put some time into explaining those. Okay, good. All right, thank you for the first class. See you on Wednesday. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Jen. Professor. Um, bye. I have an interview on Wednesday from 3 to 3.20, so I will be a few minutes late for class. It was an OCI that got moved, and I wanted to to actually talk with you instead of just send you an email that said that. Um, What would you like me to do? Um, I'm I'm assuming we won't have gotten to our our small group activity at that. those Those will be at the end of the class. Okay. That was my um, that was my main concern was that I was going yeah. to be hindering my group, um, so I wanted to make sure that that wasn't an issue. So I'll make sure to yeah. watch that part of the lecture uh, once it's posted. Then, right. So All that's right. Fine. Thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye.